Bring your Bibles to the Gospel of Luke, the first chapter. Luke's Gospel, chapter 1, and we are beginning now in the first chapter, verse 26. Verse 26, just give me one moment. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this may be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. And he will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. In his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, how will this be since I'm a virgin? And the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. and The power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who was called barren, for nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Let's pray. O Lord God, we humble ourselves before your presence right now. And we look to the Bible, which is your word, O Lord, to speak to us, to reveal to us your holy will. And Lord, as we plunge into the depths of the doctrine of the incarnation, O Lord, O Lord, our our minds are dull and our hearts are recalcitrant from the worldliness that surrounds us day to day. But I pray now, Holy Spirit, you would soften the hearts You'd unclog our ears and give us clarity of mind that the profoundness of this mystery of the incarnation would would do for us, O Lord, what it 
is intended to give us a sense of awe and wonder at the majesty of Christ. I pray that, I pray that we would, oh Lord, just, just be amazed at what you have done, what you have accomplished for us through your Son. I pray, O oh Lord, that, that our hearts would be warmed as well and that we would see, O oh Lord, in Mary, O oh Lord, a model, a model of, of someone who truly is a woman of faith and that we likewise would emulate her in our ability and our desire to want to serve you. Oh, Heavenly Father, we just pray, Almighty God, that you would hear our prayers, that you would open our eyes. And, oh, Lord, I pray for your Holy Spirit that you would empower me and anoint me, that as I speak, that you would carry me along. And, oh, Lord, that my lips, my heart, and my mind would speak forth the very words you intend, and that today we would be edified and encouraged in you. We ask this, O Holy Spirit, in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. As we get back to the Gospel of Luke, if we are now in our third sermon, Luke takes us to the very beginning. Uh, unlike some of the other Gospels, he started with the birth narrative of John the Baptist, which was miraculous in and of itself, um, how she, Elizabeth, conceived given the fact that she was an older woman past menopause and was unable to conceive her entire life. And then immediately now Luke takes us to the conception of Christ. And this likewise is a miraculous event. And there are a lot of similarities, but there are some major differences between the two narratives of Elizabeth and Mary. Among those similarities, uh, we could see that both John and Jesus were born to godly women who conceived by miraculous means. The difference being Elizabeth was, as I said, a, an older woman who was barren, and Mary was a young virgin who had never been with a man. Uh, both births were announced by the same angel, Gabriel, who instructed the recipients what their, the name should be of their children. Uh, both Zechariah and Mary questioned Gabriel and both received a sign. But that's about where the similarities end because these were two very different births. While it is true that John the Baptist was the forerunner to the Messiah and he was destined to be great before the Lord, Jesus was destined to be great without qualification. John was filled with the Holy Spirit from his conception. Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit. John was the forerunner to the Messiah. Jesus Christ is the Messiah. John is the opening act. Jesus is the main attraction. Many years later, when Jesus would begin his public ministry, after being baptized by John, John's disciples came up to him and he says, says, Master, what are we going to do? Everyone's following Jesus now. They're not following you anymore. What was John's response? He must increase. I must decrease. 
It's an amazing thing because John and Jesus were cousins and they were both conceived around the same time and both had a particular, a very important role in redemption history. But it is Christ alone on who the focus is now. It is the gospel of Jesus Christ according to Luke. And so with that said, let's jump right into our text and this birth narrative, which is the incarnation, which is speaking about how Mary conceived and was uh, um, of the Lord. But, but our text today focused specifically on the Annunciation. Just as Gabriel came to announce the good news of the birth of John to Zechariah in the temple, he also came to make an announcement to Mary. Uh, two very different occasions. Zechariah was an old man. He was a priest in the temple of God. Um, we know that as he was going in to offer incense, there, behold, the angel was there. And you would expect to see an angel in the temple of God. But Gabriel visited Mary six months later, as this text tells us, not in the temple of God, not in Jerusalem, but in her home in a little village called Nazareth. And the word city is used there, but it is far from a bustling metropolis. Nazareth is a little backwater town in Galilee. It is a place where relatively poor people and peasants live. And that is why it was said in John chapter 146, can anything good come out of Nazareth was the saying of the day. And it was here where the angel Gabriel would come to visit Mary and to announce to her the good news that God had chosen her. In fact, we have to concur along with the rest of Scripture, had chosen her before the foundations of the world to be the one in whom would bring the Messiah into the world. So what do we know about Mary? Well, the first thing is we read in the text, it says in verse uh, 26, it says, in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God. Again, he's come, the Lord sending Gabriel to bring this announcement to Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. The virgin's name was Mary. And he came and he said to her, greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. We don't know much about Mary other than the fact of um, that she was betrothed to Mary. Uh, reading between the lines, we know from later in the passage in chapter 1 that she's related to Elizabeth. We're already told that Elizabeth uh, descends from the Aaronic line, and so um, she is a descendant of Aaron, then most likely Mary is also a descendant of Aaron. With that said, we also know that she is betrothed to Joseph. We know from Matthew's gospel, that Joseph was a carpenter. And we know that um, Joseph was betrothed to her. Uh, and in ancient uh, Israel, to be betrothed was equivalent to being married. Marriages were arranged in those times. Uh, you did not get to choose or who you would marry and fall in love. It didn't operate that way. But at the tender age of 12 or 13, young girls were arranged to be married. And there was no doubt that Mary would have been around 13 years old around this time. I want you to think about it and take that in perspective. My daughter Elizabeth is 13 years old. That is quite young to be betrothed, to be married, but life started young in ancient Israel. 
Um, many in the Jewish community celebrate bar mitzvahs and bat mitzvahs in our current day. It's when you come of age. It's a party of coming to age. When you become an adult in ancient Israel at 13, you became an adult. You got married. You had kids. You started a family. You went to work. Now we can't get kids out of the house when they're 30 years old. How times have changed. In any case, Mary was a young girl. She was a virgin. She had never been with a man. She was betrothed. She was um, committed to Joseph. And she was probably a woman who came out of poverty. Uh, again, Nazareth was a backwater town. Uh, there was not many, there was not wasn't any wealthy people who lived there. These were people who were farmers. These were people who, were, uh, who raised cattle and, and who were shepherds. These were not people who were considered prestigious in society. And the angel Gabriel is sent by God to bring to her the announcement that he had chosen her to bring forth the Messiah. And it's in the greeting where he says to her, O favored one, and declares to her that she had found favor with God. I want to stop here for a minute because this is something very important, and I like the ESV's translation of it. Um, He says, O favored one, the Lord is with you. Anyone with a Roman Catholic background can see the similarity in language there um, to know that the Hail Mary, a Hail Mary full of grace, the Lord is with you. Now, just a little background on that. The, the, the prayer is based on this passage, um, and it is based on a wrong translation of this passage. Um, the Gospel of Luke, when it was translated in the 4th century, was translated into what we call the Latin Vulgate. And that is the Latin uh, Vulgate means vulgar or common, was the common Latin language that people spoke in the 4th and 5th century. The Latin Vulgate then was mistranslated this from the Greek to say that Mary was full of grace. There's there's a couple of things. Notice, Gabriel does not say, Hail Mary. There is no worship of Mary here. He is not exalting Mary. He is not praising Mary. He is not lifting up Mary's name. He simply greets her as, and the correct translation is, well, it's greetings, not hail, and then it's, oh, favored one. Oh, favored one. That's a big difference from being full of grace. There are two different things. And so the Latin Vulgate uh, translates it as full of grace, as if Mary is the one who is the source of grace and the dispenser of grace. And that's why Catholics are taught to pray to Mary, because she is full of grace and therefore she dispenses grace. That is not what Gabriel is saying, he's saying the Lord is with you, is that she is the recipient of grace. She is the object of grace. The root word there is charis in in Greek. It's where we get the term charismatic, and it simply means to be gracious. It means to be one who has received favor. God has showed grace to Mary. He favored her. He favored her in that of all the women through all time and all history, she was selected to be the mother of Christ. That was the dream of every Jewish girl throughout redemption history. Sadly, the Catholics have made this into something it's not. They've turned Mary into an idol. In Roman Catholic doctrine, she is referred to as the co-mediatrix. 
In other words, not only can Christ mediate for us, but Mary can mediate for us, and she dispenses grace. And if you know Roman Catholicism, the emphasis tends to be more on her than Christ himself. Mary would have never wanted that. It was never what God intended. And certainly, that was not the words of Gabriel. It was based on a faulty translation and a faulty doctrine that even Roman Catholic scholars today will admit is a faulty translation. However, they will not change their practice. Our Catholic family members and friends are misguided and in error, and therefore we need to pray that God would open their eyes, but it is important that we could see the original translation of this to understand what is going on. So we know that Mary is favored of God. God had selected her. He had favored her and showed grace to her. And Mary's response in verse 30, or verse 29 rather, tells us like Zechariah, she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. Uh, Again, like I said about Zechariah, when you see angels, you are troubled. There's a disturbance. It is abnormal. It's not something natural. You don't see angels every day. And if you do, the natural reaction is to tremble, to be fearful, to, to, to quake. Um, there is a sense of, of, of trepidation. What is going on here? Who is this angel? She's a young girl too. She's 13 years old. Zechariah at least is an older man who has a familiarity with scripture. This is a young girl, although she's God-fearing and humble. It shows us also that she is someone who uh, is not understanding quite as what is going on. And there's a sense of trepidation. However, he responds to her and says, fear not, fear not. This is always the word of the angel. Fear not, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. Again, he is explaining to her that not only is she the favored one, but she has found favor, she has found grace with God. God found her to be favored and showed grace upon her. This is a reminder not only to Mary, but to all of us who are in Christ See, Mary brought Christ into the world and God chose to use her as a vessel to uh, bring about the incarnation. But she is the first of many who would experience the grace of God. The gospel, the good news is about the grace of God upon all mankind. We are not under law, but under grace. Christ came to preach grace to us. He came to give us good news, to tell us that God is now gracious towards us. Why? Because Christ himself bore the wrath of our sins. He took our place at the cross. He satisfied the demands of the law. Jesus Christ became a sin offering for us. He took care of the issues that stood between us and God, and that was sin. God was angry with us and had every right to be angry with us. And we had a right uh, we had a, a right to be afraid of God because, because we were under judgment, but through Christ now, through his death and resurrection, We are all favored by God. Mary is no different or unique from any other believer in Christ. We are all favored by God now. God's favor rests upon us. And I want you to think about that. And he doesn't favor you because of something special in you. It's not because you are smarter or spiritual or more godly or more holy. Most of us are wretches. All of us are wretches, I should say. 
There is nothing lovely about us. It's because of Christ in us that God shows favoritism to us. Christ is his favorite. Christ is the ultimate favored one. And because of Christ dwelling in us, we are found favored with God. I am glad that Jesus is the favorite. I am glad that he is in me because now we are favored through him. Second point, let's look at the angel's message, the angel's declaration. And behold, verse 31, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus. And he will be great and will be called the son of the most high. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and ever and his kingdom will have no end. That statement right there is the annunciation. It is the announcement. You cannot imagine how overwhelming that must have been for that little girl to hear what she just heard. Let's break down the, the announcement to see. She says, you're going to conceive in your womb and bear a son. Mary has never been with a man. And as we see later, uh, she says, how will this be since I'm a virgin? Verse 34. She's going to bear a son. She's going to, to conceive. And this will be the work of God. She's going to have a child. But notice more importantly, now he, just like he did with John, he instructs her that his name shall be called Jesus. God names the child. God takes that authority. And the name Jesus, which is a derivative, Greek derivative of the, of the Hebrew name Joshua, which means our God saves. It was only a couple of months later after Joseph, who was troubled by all of this and was ready to divorce her and put her out, is also visited by Gabriel. And we see that in Matthew chapter 1. And, and what happens? He says to her, you, he confirms this. Not only is this from God, but says, you shall name the boy Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. He shall save their people from their sins. That's in Matthew 1. 21. Not only does it affirm, but it tells us the purpose for which Christ came. Christ came to be the Savior of his people, to save us from our sins, to save us from judgment, to save us from the wrath of God. Furthermore, the angel says he will be great. Unlike John, who will be great in the sight of God, Jesus will be great without limit. Jesus is great without limit limit. Um, often ter terms in our vernacular, we use the term goat, G-O-A-T, not a, not, a, not a goat, a mountain goat or a billy goat, but the word goat is an acronym for greatest of all time, right? So when you see someone who is a, a, a great football player, you know, um, and you see um, someone who's a great basketball player, like Michael Jordan, for instance. Everybody will probably say, you know, Michael Jordan's probably one of the goats of basketball, the greatest of all time. But when we talk about great ones, there is no other great one. There is no other goat, I should say, and I don't want to say goat because he's the shepherd, but then Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the greatest of all time. You had Herod the Greats and Alexander the Greats and all these people who pursued greatness. Jesus was born with greatness because his greatness pre-existed his birth as the eternal son of God. 
He is the great one. All throughout the Old Testament, whenever the word great is used, it is used to describe God and his attributes. Great is the wisdom of God. Great is the power of God. Great is his faithfulness. His works are great. God is not just good. God is great. And this is the one to whom Mary will give birth. I want you to really get your head around and grasp the juxtaposition here of, of the greatness of Christ and the humility of Christ. The eternal Son of God in whom angels bow down and worship. The one who is the great one without limit. The unique Son of God, the only begotten of God is going to be born to this humble, poor, young girl from Nazareth, a backwater town in the middle of nowhere. I want you to think of the profoundness of this. On earth, he suffered poverty, homelessness, persecution, rejection. He suffered physical torture. And at the same time, he is the greatest one of all time. We equate greatness in our own understanding, our human understanding with, with power and money and wealth and, and, and the ability to get whatever you want in this life. But greatness, according to God, is defined different. It's defined through humility. Jesus instructed his disciples, whoever would be great among you must be the least among you. Whoever wants to be greatest among you must be a servant. For God exalts the humble, but humbles the exalted. God's value system is so different. When we think about greatness, there is no one greater than Jesus. And he said, I didn't come to this world, Mark 10, 45, to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Greatness is about serving. Greatness is about giving of yourself. Greatness is about being humble, about being teachable, about being gracious. You know what? For all the people who are seeking greatness in human terms, God will humble you. But for those who pursue humility, God will make you great. Because you'll be like your, your Messiah. You'll be like your Lord. Thirdly, he will be called son of the most high. Make no mistake about it. Gabriel is affirming exactly who Christ will be. He will be the son of the most high. That phrase most high is used often in the Old Testament, particularly in the Psalms. David wrote of God and referred to him as the most high. Um, and, and if you look down a little further in verse 35, he says the most high will overshadow you the power of the most high will overshadow you therefore the child to be born will be called holy the son of god this was no ordinary child jesus is the eternal son of god his conception he does not have a human father god is his father and that is why, uniquely, among any other human being, Jesus Christ can call. We could all say we're God's children, but Jesus is uniquely the only begotten. He is the unique son of God. No one else can claim that title because no other human being was born through a mother without a human father. He is unique. He is the son of the Most High. And all, ultimately, he is the descendant 
of David. He is going to receive the throne of David and reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. Again, there is no mystery to the destiny of Christ. He is destined to be a king. When Jesus is crucified and Pilate asks him, are you a king? He says, you say that I am, and it is true. Jesus is a king, He is, and his kingdom is not of this world. It is a spiritual kingdom. And when Jesus burst on the scene and when he began his public ministry, he declared that the kingdom of God had arrived. And we are in the kingdom of God. It is not a kingdom that is, that is uh, uh, to be perceived with, with weapons of warfare and, and kingdoms of this world. It is a spiritual kingdom where Christ reigns in the hearts and rules over his people. He is sovereign over all uh, the heavens and the earth. And one day that kingdom will become a reality when he returns at the consummation. But Jesus is a king he has received. He is a descendant of his father, David, because God promised David that he will always have a son to rule in Israel. Now remember, at this time, the king of Israel is a puppet king. He's not even Jewish. His name is Herod the Great. What an what a, what a oxymoron that is, right? And so Herod, who is not even of Jewish descent, who's not of Davidic descent, is ruling over the people. And to hear that finally the descendant of David, a true uh, 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 promise from God is coming to fulfill this messianic uh, expectation is here, must have been overwhelming for Mary. Now Jesus would, would receive his Davidic descent primarily from Joseph, who was the house of David. He would, he would have that right. But that doesn't mean Mary wasn't also a descendant of David. Although she was descendant of Aaron, she could have had both the blood of Aaron and the blood of David in her, which most scholars believe. And that would make sense because Jesus is both prophet, priest, and king. He would be the descendant of Aaron and David and God's prophet. And so we see here that, that just as John had an amazing destiny, Christ's destiny was even greater. He used to be the king who will rule forever. Oh, praise God. Mary's response is now to be looked at. And in response, she says, How will this be since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child shall be born, shall be called holy, the son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has conceived a son in the sixth month with her who was called barren, for nothing is impossible with God. And so the angel not only explains to her uh, the, how God is going to do this, and how is he going to do it? He's going to do it by the power of God, through the Holy Spirit who will overshadow her. Now, what does that mean? Now, we have to understand the virgin conception here, uh, particularly in, in why God did what he did. You see, we needed a perfect meteor who would be fully human and be fully God. Someone who could represent us to God and represent God to us. We needed a savior who could bridge the gap. And Jesus had to have both a full humanity and a full uh, deity. And so he is 100% God. He is 100% man. He is fully God and fully man. There is not 50-50. And it was necessary that the virgin birth was the only way to accomplish this. 
There's other ways that the Messiah could have come into the world. He, uh, God could have created a body, a human body in heaven uh, for Jesus and sent him from heaven as an adult. But it would have been hard for us to believe he was fully human. He, he, would, have, he would have to uh, be part of our human race. He'd have to be part of the race of Adam in order to redeem us from sin. He, he could have been born of two human parents in an ordinary way. And then the, uh, the Spirit of God could have came upon him later in his life. Um, but if that was the case, then he would have been like us in every way. He would have been of, uh, born of natural process and he would have been just a mere man. And by the way, there were ancient heresies that believed this. And when we think of these two possibilities, it helps us to understand why God ordained the virgin birth. It was to combine both deity and humanity in one. Christ is the son of man by being born to woman, having an ordinary uh, human birth with an ordinary mother, thus sharing in the demic race, but being conceived by the Holy Spirit. He is the Son of God, possessing full deity. Thus it says in Scripture in Galatians 4, 4 through 5, but in the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law. Hebrews 2, 2.17 Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. In order to be our mediator, in order to be our savior, he had to come into the world this way through the virgin birth. But there's also another important aspect, and that is that the virgin birth is necessary for Christ to be sinless and not inherit the curse of Adam. You see, as human beings, we all have original sin, right? In Romans 5, it tells us that, that all in Adam die because all have sinned in Adam. Original sin is imputed to each and every one of us. When you were conceived in your mother's womb, what does the Bible tell us? We were conceived in sin. You had a sin nature from when you were a little peanut in your mother's womb. It didn't yet develop and it didn't yet uh, uh, come out yet and express itself because you were uh, a, little, a little peanut in your mother's womb. I say peanut because that's what you look like when you're, when you're that age, right? And, and so as, as you develop in your mother's womb, you come out and you start, and you come out, the first thing you do is you cry and you scream. You start sinning. You sin from the moment you're born. Life is full of sin. You are a sinner by nature. We are all sinners by nature. And you see, if Jesus was to be born into the human line and to be our representative and to, and to atone for sin for us, that had to be interrupted. The transmission of original sin had to be stopped. And the only way that that could be done it's through the virgin birth. While Jesus had a human mother, God was his father. He was conceived by the Holy Spirit, thus the child born shall be called holy. Christ was born sinless. He was not tainted with original sin. Because of the nature of his birth, Original sin was interrupted. 
It was done by the work of the Holy Spirit who overshadowed Mary, protecting even Mary's transmission of sin to him. If Jesus wasn't born sinless, he could have never atoned for our sin. He needed to be born holy from the moment he came out of his mother's womb. Just remember this. No one, no one in history can say, I always do what's pleasing to the Father. So as we proceed here, we see that he reminds her of of how God is going to do this. He explains how God is going to do this, rather, and then gives her a sign. And the sign is that Elizabeth, your cousin, has also conceived, and she's barren. If that's hard to believe, Mary, guess what? Your older cousin, Elizabeth, who's probably 50 years old at this time, is six months pregnant. Go see if you don't believe it. That's exactly what she would do in our next text. Nothing is impossible with God. I want you to think about that and the implications of that because as Christians, we place limitations on God and what he could do in our life. We think that God is unable to do certain things and we lose hope and we lose faith. I know I do at times. I know there are times where I pray and I pray and I pray and it seems like God doesn't answer my prayers. And I say, why, oh Lord, aren't you answering? And somehow in my own sinful mind, I say, well, God's not able to do that. There is nothing impossible with God. If God could bring Christ into this world miraculously through the virgin birth, what is impossible for him? If God could uh, help an old woman like Elizabeth, and never mind Elizabeth, let's go back even further to Sarah, who was well into her 80s to conceive and bring forth a son into the world through Isaac. What is impossible for God? Are these just myths? Are these just fables? Or do we believe in the historicity and the reality and the fact that God works through the supernatural? God is not the God of the scientific. God is the God of the impossible. God could do things that no human being could do. And the things he does cannot be scientifically proven because they are not scientific. God, they cannot be replicated. They cannot be repeated. They cannot be tested. They are acts of God. And acts of God by nature are without limit. The question is, can God do anything? Is there anything God can do? Well, God can't sin, right? God cannot lie, because that would be to violate his nature. But philosophically, one of the questions we ask, can God make a rock big enough that he can't move? Think about that for a minute. Can God make a rock big? Well, if he can't move the rock, then he's no longer all-powerful. God cannot do anything that violates his nature, violates his omnipotence, violates his righteousness, violates his holiness. And so in that sense, God is limited. But in the sense of the laws of nature, in the sense of the laws of physics, God transcends that. And if you don't believe in that, then you might as well throw the Bible out, and you might as well renounce Christianity altogether.
Because the gospel is based on the virgin birth. It's based on the resurrection. And if you don't believe in the virgin birth and you don't believe the resurrection, then you're still in your sins. You haven't been forgiven. You might as well eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow you die. The virgin birth is necessary. And it is not only possible, it is real. If it weren't so, then there would be no point in being a Christian. Now, some of the, there have been arguments against the virgin birth. Some of the arguments have been, well, you know, the gospel writers are just borrowing from Greek mythology. They were influenced by Greek mythology. You know, there's actually a, a book that was written several years ago called The Pagan Jesus. Um, if you get a chance to pick it up, and it's a Christian response to these arguments that the, the whole narrative of the virgin birth is developed and taken from uh, uh, pagan sources, that it's not original in its sense. And, and, and so the, the argument goes like this. Well, you look at some of the Greek heroes, like Perseus or Hercules, right? They were born of virgin births, right? Right? Zeus was their father, right? And, and he chose human uh, uh, mothers, and, 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 and he conceived, they conceived and brought forth uh, these superheroes in, in the Greek world. But upon closer evaluation, these alleged parallels are very different from the New Testament. You see, in, in all these pagan accounts, it involved Zeus being a lustful god who had sexual intercourse with these women. Nothing here in any way suggests, it would almost be blasphemous, it would be blasphemous to suggest in any way that there is a lustful component to this. Did God lust after Mary? Did he impregnate Mary? Just to ask the question is blasphemous. Moreover, Horus and Perseus and Hercules, they're just legends. They're not real people. Jesus Christ is a real historical person. Even if you do not believe in the gospel, you cannot deny that Jesus was a real historical person. You cannot deny the fact that his ministry was historical, that his death was historical, and you cannot deny that his resurrection was historical. Allah goes far. While there may be similarities, they're in no way connected. The conception of the virgin birth or the historical accounts of Jesus' conception to show us the divine origin of Christ. There was no sexuality involved here. This was involved with the work of God, a miracle of the Holy Spirit to fulfill God's plan from Isaiah 7, 14. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel, God with us. Well, these legends and stories that people may say are parallel are really counterfeits of the true story. You see, Satan had some understanding of God's plan of redemption. And so Satan is a, remember something, Satan could only counterfeit. Nothing is original with Satan. He's a, he's a copycat. That's all Satan does. He, he counterfeits reality. And so uh, these legends and these pagan myths that may have parallel elements are satanic in origin. 
Satan has far more knowledge of God than we do and is the father of lies. He spun his own beautiful web of deceit in the ancient world, misleading people by conjuring up these counterfeit myths and then using it to attack the truthfulness of Scripture. Well, let me conclude. Mary responds to the angel in verse 38. She says, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. How humble, how fitting. This was the response of a true woman of God. I am the Lord's servant. And by the way, this contradicts everything in Roman Catholic theology. By her, say, identifying herself as the Lord's servant. She is not putting herself on equal terms with God. She's not putting herself on equal terms with Christ. She's saying, I am the Lord's servant. The word doulos is used there, slave. She's saying, I am the slave of God. I have no rights. I have no, no independence. I have no option here. I belong to God. I am his property. You can use me. I am your servant. I am here to do thy will. That is Mary's disposition. This disposition of utter humility. And in that humility, we see and get an idea of just how difficult this must have been for her. She says, let it be to me according to your word. I want you to stop and think of that for a moment. I remember when Claudia first became pregnant with Rachel. Uh, 13 years ago, I would have been about 30. I was in my early 30s. My math is evading me. And when Rachel, when Chloe was pregnant with Rachel, I remember I was terrified. I was terrified to be a parent. I had no idea what being a parent would be like. We were both scared. And I remember we were reading this book, What to Do or How Do You Prepare for the Birth of Your Child. I forgot the name of the book, but it's, it, was a, it was a fun, each month gives you things to think about and prepare and then and there was a sequel to it for the toddler years. And we were clueless. Could you imagine a 13-year-old girl being told, you are going to give birth to the Son of God? Could you imagine how scary that must have been? Could you imagine how difficult that, to get her head around that? But, 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 but Lord, I'm so young. But, 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 but God, can't you get someone else? But, 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 but God, that would have been my response. But you see the humility of Mary? Let it be to me as it is. Let it be. She trusted entirely on God to get her through it. She didn't look to herself. She didn't try to wonder what, how she was going to I mean, there was a lot of things probably rushing to her. How am I going to explain this now to my parents, to Joseph? You know, what are people going to think of me? They're going to think I was immoral. All those things. Joseph will divorce me. We'll see. We'll get to that part, right? But the bottom line is, she said, I'm the Lord's servant. Let it be. 
This is a woman who had faith. Rather than question, rather than deliberate, rather than doubt, she trusted God. Now I want to encourage you all as we close in the same way. Let us consider how we can model her faith, how we can model her obedience. We have received the good news of the gospel announced by angels, delivered to us through the apostles and now in the Bible. And God has commissioned us. He's commissioned all of us. We are stewards of this gospel, stewards of the gospel of life. We're stewards of of the truth. And we may not feel equipped, we may not be able to wrap our heads around the responsibility of being a Christian. And it's a great responsibility. All God requires of us is that we learn to be humble servants. If we could express like Mary, I am your servant, Lord. I'm here to do your will. Let it be as you say. And not just in the generality of life, but in everything. There are going to be times where God is going to put us in situations and scenarios where we're not going to know what to do. He's not going to give us an explanation. There isn't always going to be a manual for things in life. There aren't always going to be books to explain. And God isn't going to tell you how to get through it. Sometimes you just have to trust in him, have faith in him, and say, Lord, let it be. I am your servant. When you have that kind of disposition, then like Mary, the grace of God will be upon us. We will know that we are favored of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, gracious God, we thank you and praise you for this morning's message. We thank you for the words that are in the scripture. We thank you for what you did in the life of that young virgin. Lord, we know that Mary is in heaven with you now, not the queen of heaven, but as a sister in Christ, a servant, a fellow servant. And, O Lord, although we don't bow to Mary and pray to Mary, we thank you for what you showed us in this remarkable woman's life. And like all the saints in the Bible, we can't imagine, O Lord, what she endured Lord, even as she saw Christ suffer on the cross, we can't imagine how that tore her up. But Lord, we just thank you. We thank you for the fact that you brought your son into the world through this divine miracle of the incarnation. And we pray, dear God, that as we enter into Advent season now, leading up to Christmas, that our hearts and minds would be focused on this great doctrine, on this great reality. And, O Lord, that we would, uh, O Lord, just have a greater appreciation, O Lord, for the birth narrative. May our hearts be challenged. May we be strengthened. May we live according to thy word. In Jesus' name, amen.